Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT We all depend on the finance sector. We need it to store our money, manage our payments, finance housing stock, restore infrastructure, fund retirement and support new businesses. But these roles comprise only a tiny sliver of the sector's activity. The vast majority of lending is within the finance sector. But what is the purpose of this activity and why is it so profitable? These are the questions asked by FT columnist and finance industry insider John Kay in his forthcoming book, other people's money, in which he argues that the finance world's perceived profitability is not the creation of new wealth, but the sector's appropriation of wealth, of other people's money. Welcome to The Money Show. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT Money Editor, and this week, in a specially extended edition of our podcast, I'm joined in the FT studio by John Kay. John, Welcome to the FT Money Show. Thank you, Claire. Your book describes your experience of working in the finance sector twice in your life, first as a young man, later as a bank board member. But how did the culture of the sector change within that time? Pretty drastically. I was a boy in Edinburgh way back in the 1960s. And actually, the first work I ever did was in the finance sector because my parents and teachers thought I ought to be an actuary, which was, as it were, the job for boys who were good at maths at school, which I was. But actually, in the main, the finance sector didn't attract very clever people then. If you didn't get good enough grades to go on to a good university, you might join the Bank of Scotland or the Royal Bank of Scotland. Right. And after 20 years or so, you might expect to become a manager uh, there were no woman managers, of course, then. No, of You'd course You'd play not. golf with your, um, with your clients and customers. And it was generally a relaxed environment and one based on personal relationships. By the time the Royal Bank of Scotland collapsed in 2008, uh, these were organisations run by much cleverer people with very good degrees from very good universities. And uh, the kind of clever young mathematicians, which I was when I worked at Scottish Widows Fund, were now being employed in banks to create very complicated securities. The strange thing is that all these clever people didn't run the sector better. They ran it a lot worse. And that's the kind of the paradox which I'm trying to explore in, in this book. Well, indeed, it's been seven years since the financial crisis broke. 
And we've had numerous analyses of why it happened. So what prompted you to write a book about it now in 2015? Well, I think the analyses we've had of how it happened have been the kind of blow-by-blow accounts of the events that happened in 2008. And what I'm trying to do in this sector is ask a lot more basic questions about the nature of finance and the way in which the financial sector evolved. What happened to change things from the world I experienced as a boy in the 1960s uh, to the world that fell apart in 2008? What caused these changes uh, why was it that they, so many people thought they were for the better, but they actually turned out not to be? And how can we restore a financial sector that is actually directed to meeting the real needs of real people outside the financial sector? Because to my mind, so much of what has happened has been designed to uh, suit the interests of people who work in financial markets rather than Uh, the interests of uh, the customers of financial markets. Indeed. And I'd like to ask you next to read us a short extract from your book, Other People's Money. This is actually the prologue um, entitled The Parable of the Ox. And we'll go on to discuss what this parable means for the savers and FT money readers that you are um, directing it at after you've finished. A century ago, the great statistician Francis Galton observed a competition to guess the weight of an ox at a country fair. 800 people entered the competition. Being the kind of man he was, Galton ran statistical tests on the numbers, and he discovered that the average guess was extremely close to the actual weight of the ox. This is a story that was told entertainingly by James Surowiecki in his book The Wisdom of Crowds a few years ago. But not many people know the events that followed, because a few years later the scales seemed to become less and less reliable. Repairs would be expensive, but the fair organiser had a brilliant idea. Since attendees were so good at guessing the weight of the ox, it wasn't necessary to repair the scales the organiser would simply ask everyone to guess the weight and take the average of their estimates. But a new problem emerged. Once weight-guessing competitions became the rage, some participants tried to cheat. They even tried to get privileged information from the farmer who had bred the ox. And there was fear that if some people had this kind of edge, others would be reluctant to enter the weight-guessing competition. If there were only a few entrants you wouldn't be able to rely on the the wisdom of crowds. The whole process of weight discovery would be damaged. So strict regulation was introduced. The farmer was told he must prepare three monthly bulletins on the development of the ox, and these bulletins were posted on the door of the market so that everyone could read them. And if the farmer gave anyone any other information about the ox, that had to be posted on the market door too. And anyone who entered the competition, who knew something about the ox that wasn't available to the world at large, would be expelled from the market. In this way, you could preserve the integrity and fairness of the weight-guessing process. Professional analysts screened the contents of these regulatory announcements, and they advised their clients on the implications. They wined and dined the farmers. But they discovered that once farmers were required to be careful about the information they disclosed, the lunches weren't very useful. And the smartest analysts, 
realised that understanding the nutrition and the health of the ox wasn't that useful anyway. Since the ox wasn't actually being weighed, what mattered was the guesses of the bystanders. The key to success lay not in correctly assessing the weight of the ox, but in guessing what other bystanders would guess the weight of the ox was, or what other people would guess other people would guess, and so on. Now, not everyone agreed with all of this. Some people, such as old farmer Buffett, claimed that the results of this process were getting more and more divorced from the realities of ox-rearing. But no one paid much attention to him. It was true that Farmer Buffett's beast did appear rather healthy and very well-fed, and Farmer Buffett became ever more prosperous, but he was just a countryman who didn't really understand how modern financial markets worked. By this time, there was a large industry of professional weight-guessers, organisers of weight-guessing competitions and advisers who helped people to refine their guesses. A few people suggested that it might be cheaper just to repair the scales, but they were derided. Why go back to relying on the judgment of a single auctioneer when you could benefit from the aggregated wisdom of so many people? And then the ox died. Amidst all this activity, no one had remembered to feed it. Wow, what a wonderful analogy there. Very well read, John, thank you. Of all that went wrong in the financial sector, but reversing to real life, the overcomplicated intricacies, the inward-looking nature of the finance industry, which you get to in that parable, how do you pull that together in real life to determine the cause of the financial crisis? In a sense, it's not real life because it's more and more divorced from the realities of the non-financial economy, which are about houses, businesses, infrastructure, property, and so on. What we've created is an immensely complex world in which the main activity is people trading with each other. If you ask what do people in the City of London and Canary Wharf do, predominantly they spend all day exchanging bits of paper with each other. And we need to raise two basic questions. One is, what is the economic value of this activity and secondly why is it so profitable and we've had five years of regulatory reform haven't the regulators solved this problem so it can't happen again no and the style of regulation we have can't solve the problem what we have actually is regulators prescribing more and more detailed rules mainly of the kind which would have prevented or might have prevented the last crisis we have uh, but the truth is that regulation based on this kind of detailed prescription doesn't work in any industry and hasn't been working here. What we need to do is have a different style of regulation that addresses the structure of the industry, which I've argued is a large part of the problem, and the incentives of people in it, which is another large part of the problem. And unless we focus on these issues of structure of firms and incentives of both firms and individuals, we're not going to get a, a financial system, either which is more robust and resilient or which better meets the needs of real people in the real economy. Now, your book argues for banking to become boring again. Um, you argue that we need more Captain Mannerings in the sector as opposed to Jeff Skillings. But is that realistic? Well, it's going to be difficult to achieve because uh, the Jeff Skillings of the world 
well, Jeff Skilling is out of it now, thank goodness. Uh, but people not so far different from Jeff Skilling, but on the right side of legality, have become an extremely powerful and well-funded lobby and activity. My fear is that the only way we're going to get substantive reform is through another crisis, possibly one that's even bigger than the last one. And did you see the last crisis coming? Yes and no. I mean, it was obvious that the credit expansion of 2003 to 2007 uh, would end in tears. What I certainly didn't see was the extent to which uh, the crisis would be focused within large financial conglomerates themselves. I thought that hedge funds would actually be uh, the area in which things started to go badly wrong. And it was instructive that that was wrong because what we learned is a great many hedge funds did do badly in the crash and disappear, but actually it didn't matter very much. Mm. What, what really did matter was the activities within large banks like HBOS and RBS, activities which in the main were quite a small part of their total activities, brought down the whole, the whole large diversified business. And do you see any evidence of um, those banks becoming more boring, um, to, to paraphrase your argument? There are, the, there are some bits of that. You know, banks like UBS and Royal Bank of Scotland uh, have slimmed down their investment banking activities. Uh, and Barclays seem to be doing that, but we've learned about a reversal of that trend in the last month or two. I fear, in fact, I'm, I'm confident that mo many people in the sector just want to get back to business as usual as far as they're concerned, and that's business as it was back in, in 2005 and 2006. That said, there are a lot of people in retail banking and in asset management who would like to be doing a better job, more directed to the needs of customers, but many of them find they're not operating in a structure that enables them to do that. Do you think that computer algorithms have a legitimate role to play in credit decision-making, or should they be rolled back too? Um, I think they have a legitimate role to play, but the mistake is to rely either on simple intuitive judgment or only on a computerized algorithm. It's essentially the combination of data and judgment that enables people to make good lending decisions and good asset allocation decisions. Well, yes, as we as we see in the the example of the ox, um, but the reforms that you're recommending would these have to happen on a global scale, or do you think that the UK could go it alone? Ultimately, they do have to have, happen on a global scale, but there's a great deal in the UK that we can actually do to insulate the the real economy of the UK from what happens on global financial markets. There's a difficult question, which I call you know, the British dilemma, which is whether that kind of ring-fencing is consistent with maintaining a, a, a large wholesale financial services sector here in London. And that's a real problem that we have to work our, our way through. What value does that, this activity actually contribute to the UK economy as a whole? And perhaps it's the case, if one goes back to where my schoolboys went and where later the different places where later the students I taught at Oxford went, because 
the idea back in the 60s that your cleverest graduates would be clamoring for places in Goldman Sachs was something you just never imagined <laughs> could happen. Uh, I think there's a question of, you know, what is the opportunity cost of having attracted a great many of the UK's brightest people into activities that don't actually add value for society as a whole? Well, Other People's Money will be published this week by Profile Books and is available in all good bookshops. But FT Money readers can read an extended extract from John's book, Other People's Money, in this weekend's edition, which you'll find nestling inside the weekend FT newspaper, widely available on both Saturday and Sunday. Or you can read online at ft.com slash money. And for news alerts throughout the week, follow us on Twitter at FT Money. Podcast listeners are also invited to pre-register for an exclusive FT Money event featuring John Kay to be held here at the FT's offices in London on the evening of Tuesday the 3rd of November. John will be speaking in more detail about the themes discussed in his book and answering questions from readers as well as signing copies, plus there's a chance to have a glass of wine and meet all of the writers in the FT Money team. Tickets will go on sale shortly, costing £25 per person. To register your interest, please email us at money at ft.com with your contact details stating how many places you would like to reserve. There's just time to tell you what else is in this weekend's edition of FT Money. A year after personal finance was introduced onto the school curriculum, we deliver our annual report. Our investment columnist, Lord Lee, is keen to tell readers about a new shareholding he's added to his portfolio. And as usual, we've shared tips from our sister publication, The Investor's Chronicle, and the latest director's deals. The FT Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from John. Bye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.